You're listening to All The Best. I'm Danny Stewart. This week, we're sharing part two of stories recorded at All The Best Live, a live storytelling event we put on with help from the city of Sydney. Our lineup of amazing storytellers took to the stage and performed work on the theme of secrets and confessions. If you missed part one last week, you can listen back at allthebestradio.com or on our podcast feed. In our first story for part two of All The Best Live, Jared is processing his identity. Um, Until yesterday, I had a whole different story that I was going to read. Despite the themes, confessions, and secrets, my original plan was to read something about a mischievous fox. I decided against it for one reason. Well, two reasons. I kind of realized that it was just the plot of Fantastic Mr. Fox, but like not as good. Um, But the main reason was that yesterday I turned 28, and the approaching Saturn's return has prompted a rare moment of introspection. I must speak from the heart about something that I've been meaning to say for a long time, to finally tell the truth. This is really hard, but here it goes. In 2010, when I was 15, I did something that has continued to affect my life. I came out as gay. Sorry, that doesn't actually make any sense. I meant to say I lied about coming out as gay. I am not gay. I know, what the frick, that's so weird. I stand before you. For some people, literally, some virtually, some in the future can only hear my voice. If you can't make out the finer points of my appearance, I would say generally that I look like a gay man. I have bleached hair, painted nails, they're not very good. Uh, And then I was even sitting slightly oddly on a chair earlier, like I'd never really done it before. Just gay, just gay, gay, gay. But I cannot lie anymore. I am a straight cisgendered male. Let me explain, let me explain, especially in case of any of my four ex-boyfriends and countless men that I've dated may be listening, vaguely recognizing my voice, but probably thinking, wait, no, that can't be. He sounds so less gay. I've been trying to undo my fake lisp, but it's really hard. But I think my voice is sounding straighter and straighter each day. But yes, to all the boys I've loved before, what I said at the time was true. It's not you, it's me. I tried to be gay, I really did. Maybe I even believed it at first. In high school, I shaved my legs a few times, I bought tiny American apparel shorts, and my year 12 jacket read Lady Jar Jar on the back. In retrospect, it was confusing that no one called me out as a faker. I was trying too hard. Then again, it was 2010 on the Northern Beaches, and the most well-known non fictional gay person was Carson Cressley, who I believe is also pretending to be gay. Trust me, my fake gay da is very good. <laughs> At uni, I went beyond Lady Gaga. I read the theory, explored how queerness was more than just who you slept with, but a lens to view the world if you let it be. I've thrown the term queer futurity around many times while discussing weird music and art that didn't make sense. And I've followed endless Instagram accounts run by married gays who make a living seemingly out of decorating their apartments over and over again. The only difference in their posts is when the sponsored content is like slightly different and about like a different, I don't know, some sort of supplement. Didn't they paint the study fuchsia last week and then they're repainting it with Styria? 
Do they get the same haircut every week? It just, they never change. They never age. Do they exist in a world with no time or logic where walls are painted to be unpainted while shirtless, set to whatever Harry Styles single just came out? I'm sorry, that's a bit of a tangent. I've just always wanted to ask about one of those couples. I just, I don't understand how they live. But I've been so scared to ask because I assume that gay people, like actually gay people, just get it. And to be asked, and to ask would be to out myself as straight. And over the years, I've had my scares. Sometimes people would get suspicious. Anytime I hear the opening bars of Super Bass by Nicki Minaj, my heart drops. Despite my many, many attempts to learn, listening to the track in slow motion while reading the lyrics, I could never nail rapping along. Put yourself in my shoes. Every house party, every night at the Imperial or on Oxford Street, every pre-drinks, I face my whole life crumbling because I can't keep up with the queen of rap. They'd notice, they'd remark, they'd say, oh, Jared is not a real Bob. They would say it. What else is he not really, they would think. Trying to cover myself up in those moments is hard. Usually I try and prove myself with like a witty reference, something like, quoting Selena Gomez on the red carpet saying, got a little blue going on. I don't know. I wanted a little edge, a little pop in my hair. So I wanted to add something different, especially for the Teen Vogue party. That usually works. There were some other scary moments, such as the time that I said Todrick Hall was slay. I never made that mistake again. The question that I'm circling around, though, of course, is why? Why would I pretend to be gay and to do it for 12 years? I've asked myself this many, many times. Faulkner says that past isn't dead, it's not even past, but I'm pretty sure that he never experienced the cultural gulf between 2022 and 2010. It's very hard to know what I was thinking back then. For a while, the best reason that I could come up with was the proliferation of Glee on TV, or I watched quite a lot of European movies on SBS late night as a kid. Maybe I got confused. But I've known for a while, since my first boyfriend at 17, that I was straight. But that felt like a minor issue. For the first time in my life, people thought I was interesting. I had an adjective to describe me that wasn't quiet or shy or awkward or didn't he piss a bed at year seven camp? I didn't know it at the time, but what I had was clout, gay clout. But I'm tired of fake clout. I'm tired of being gay. I'm tired of casually listening to Arca on a Tuesday afternoon. I'm tired of pretending the left side of Gordon's Bay is better. My earlobe is crying out under the weight of my dangly earring collection. I don't even like ketamine. I don't want to have opinions about the Met Gala. What is Gilded Glamour? And is Evan Mock serving? I don't know. I will continue to watch RuPaul's Drag Race, though. That shit's crazy. The tucking, that's insane. That must really hurt. Whoa. Um, Maybe without these things, without being gay, I'll have to develop my own personality. Wow, I feel so much lighter already. I hope my truth gives others the courage and inspiration to also speak theirs. Thank you. That story was told by Jared Richards. You're listening to All The Best. I'm Danny Stewart. All The Best is a great place to learn the art of audio storytelling. Never made a story before? No problem. No experience is required. 
If you'd like to make a story for the show, get in touch. Visit allthebestradio.com. This week, we're sharing the stories told at All The Best Live, a live storytelling event we put on with help from the city of Sydney. Our theme for the night was Secrets and Confessions. And up next, Ruth shares her experience attending a Catholic girls' school in the 70s. So I was recently going through some papers, clearing things out, and I came upon a letter that was addressed to my parents. It's dated the 19th of April, 1976, and I was 15 at the time, and it's written by the school principal, Sister Leon, who that morning had sprung a group of us in a milk bar before class. I am sorry, Sister Leon says, to have to write to you in this vein on the eve of Easter, but after receiving a number of complaints about our girls' behaviour in the milk bars of Kingsgrove, I went up there at 8.15. I was disappointed to see 12 of our girls crammed into one shop and many of them smoking. The lettering is uneven in the way of something written in a hurry or anger, um, probably dashed off by the school secretary with Sister Leon dictating. The text is purple because it would have been written first on carbon paper and then used as a stencil on a gelatin pad for other copies to be made. Carbon copies. Three of these girls I had spoken to previously and had asked them to use their influence to stop the others. This they did not or were not able to do. Well, with, 16, with six 15-year-olds in each booth, she was right about it being crammed. The Greek owners never seemed to mind that we hardly ever bought anything. There was one order of chips that went around everybody, two potato scallops, three for 25 cents, or a chico roll if someone was feeling health conscious. <laughs> On those mornings, we tasted salt and vinegar and greasy chips, and we also tasted freedom. We were in our own safe space, away from the surveillance of teachers and parents, until Sister Leon. I was facing the street and the first to see her appear in the doorway. But rather than sounding the alarm, all I really managed was a close approximation of a fish, opening, closing and reopening my mouth. For some seconds, an eon, she stood in the doorway and took in the scene. I think she was assessing not what action she would take, but the order of it. And it went something like this. She steps inside and stands at the end of the booth. This wave of realisation sweeps up and over the assembled group. Eyes widen, somebody swears, and another girl starts crying. Someone sends the ashtray flying. Down the table, over the chips, and off the end of the booth it goes, landing on Sister Leon's shoes. I look down. She looks down. There's ash in her shoelaces. She only says one word, out. So in solemn procession, we followed her back to school and we were told to ring our parents and confess. I, I dialed the telephone number, not my own, 
and waited and listened till it rang out and then reported that nobody had answered. It was actually the only truth of my day. But then came the letter. At the time, it also I wondered who on earth would send that letter to their parents, but apparently 11 other people did. The punishment that Sister Leon proposed was that we all come to school at 8am until the end of term so that she could use our time more profitably. She did not see the need for girls to frequent milk bars at 8.15am. I hope you can appreciate my position, she said, and, and understand the support that, and the stand I have taken. So as proxy for my parents, I could appreciate her position and I did very much understand her, her stand, even if using my time more profitably turned out to be cleaning drains. By rights, I probably should have brought this transgression up when I next went to confession. The sacrament of confession was something that Catholics received or, or were put through at the age of seven. After that, you'd go into the confessional box on a semi-regular basis and tell the priest your sins and ask for absolution. It was a solemn event and as preparation you were told what to wear, where to stand and what prayers to say as you sought forgiveness. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It is two weeks or two months, however long it had been, since my last confession and these are my sins. And you'd list them. But one of the problems with confession was that what actually constituted a sin was never fully explained, or if it was, it was light on detail. A sin could be everything or nothing. It could be what you said or didn't say, what you thought or neglected to think. Public or private, there was no sphere outside the realm of sin. It was huge and all-encompassing and a mystery. I remember at seven discussing the matter very seriously with some friends and together we came up with a list that we thought would get us in and out of the confessional box without attracting further attention. Lying, disobedience, fighting with my brothers and sisters. I once also added stealing dates from the cupboard because I thought it sounded interesting, <laughs> even though we had no dates in the cupboard. The main thing was never to attract the priest's attention or be given extra penance so you didn't say more than three sins. The whole process also had this covering clause where you said, for these and all my other sins, I am truly sorry. So you could leave out any particulars you didn't want to mention. As penance, the priest would give you three Hail Marys or two Hail Marys and an Our Father or three Our Fathers. We always compared afterwards to see what each other got. One day Marie Worth got five Hail Marys, which was impressive and something of a record. I think she'd confessed to wearing Levi jeans when it wasn't even Mufti Day. I thought she was wonderful. But Sister Ita didn't and sent her home. There was one sin I never confessed to, partly because I wouldn't have admitted it to myself, let alone to a priest in a dark box. My sin was that I loved being with those girls crammed into a milk bar, as in I loved them, 
girls. And in a way, I knew I wasn't meant to. To the Catholic Church and its believers, to love girls if you're a girl, boys if you're a boy, is in their words intrinsically disordered. Under no circumstances could acting on such feelings be approved. I don't know what the nuns thought about sexuality. They never mentioned it, but they didn't mention marriage or having children either. They wanted girls to be strong and independent and have senses of social justice. The church as institution, though, is different. For them, homosexual acts are morally disordered, contrary to natural law, acts of grave depravity. As the saying goes, physician, heal thyself. I'm glad I eventually sorted through the confusion and realised the church teachings were nonsense. But it took a long time and part of me is sad about those years of confusion. In the end, it doesn't matter what the church thinks. The worst kind of shame is the one you have for yourself. I want it to be better now, that whatever flavour of different or queer a person is, young or old, they get to live their own truth without shame and that they find safe places to do it. We should all go forth and enjoy our moral disorder because love is love, milk bars and Levi jeans are great and being queer is cause for celebration, not confession. Thank you. That story was told by Ruth Melville. This week, we're sharing stories from All the Best Live, a live storytelling event we put on with help from the city of Sydney. Our theme for the night was secrets and confessions. In our final story, Olivia takes us on a journey navigating new and unfamiliar experiences. And a content warning, this story contains descriptions of drug use, death, and swear words. I'm learning to do drugs. I'm on an island and we are making pizza. Will cuts a carrot, wielding a knife in front of our faces. I half expect him to swallow it like a circus person would. We sit at dinner and half our friends sitting opposite are a million miles away. They eat with their hands and I feel the MDMA start to pull my eyes in different corners as they tell us they've taken acid. As always, I feel like I'm behind. The first night I take drugs and I'm one-upped by people taking more intense drugs. Risk averse and anxious, I think, what have I done? We split into small groups. I stay away from the acid people who are laughing at the air and away from the MDMA people who want to pat my face and smell my hair. Instead, I walk with Gus to the moored boat we arrived on the island in. I climb into the boat and am hypnotized by how black the water is. I've never seen anything so black. I want to jump in and swim, but as I start to take my jumper off, I feel wetness down my face. Apparently, I've begun crying and I can't find the tap to turn it off. Jose has finished his honours and I stand looking at a postmodern compost bin. Designers love having exhibitions. I feel faint and realise it's not food poisoning as I lower myself on a scratchy orange couch. Designers love fabrics made of organic fibres. Jose's design tutor tuts at me. Designers love to tut. He tells me not to touch the exhibition as Jose calls me an Uber to the hospital, walks me to the street where I bump into Megan Marcus who come with me. 
The Uber driver asks me if I'm in labor and as I scream in pain, I say, I fucking hope not. I haven't had a period for ages and I start to panic, not because there's no numbers or blood or uterine lining for me to do maths with, but because I'm reminded I haven't had sex yet. And if I'm pregnant, then fucking God has pulled a Mary on me. And that would be really upsetting to an atheist. In between my holy contractions, the Uber driver asks me if we'd like bottled water or mints, but for a five-star rating. I roll out of the car into the emergency room where I'm screaming so loudly I blast to the front of the queue ahead of the wailing child with the broken arm and the old man who can't breathe. Feminism is part of doing drugs, according to my brothers and ex-boyfriend. I tell them I've never bought my own drugs and they're shocked. As shocked as me earning less than them or having a man stalk me or being told I'm a troublemaker for speaking up at work. That shocked, I'm sure. Being a young woman has advantages, I guess. I think back to my first night out. I turned 17 the day before when my most prized possession became a surely unpassable fake ID. But a bouncer's favorite language is adolescent thin bolshy giggles, so I was in. As I descended the stairs in my tiny blue skirt with dangling zippers, men descended on me, imagining, I'm sure, the centimeters above the zippers, tiny winnable easy challenges, like an adult clipping a, a, clicking open a baby gate, a tiny winnable easy challenge. My friend Sam recently told me I'm hotter now than when we met a few years ago. I think he's right. I move more surely, I dress more bravely, I speak more passionately. But despite what they want us to think, even progressive men don't count self-assurance at the top of their what's hot list. But I've also become breakup thin and men love an emaciated woman. It means we can't run as fast. I'm in the hospital now and everything is floppy. They've put me in a wheelchair and pull out a long needle with a flaccid umbilical cord coming out of it. I told them I don't want morphine because I'm worried I'll become addicted or die from an overdose and that Meg was a lawyer and she would sue them if that happened. Meg shook her head, told them she had an arts degree and held my arm still while they inserted the needle. I felt my veins run cold. Cold like icy rivers moving between the small mountain huts of my old home. Cold like the forehead of someone just gone. Cold like when I'm driving on the highway and I realize I could swerve into the next lane. I ask, is this what heroin feels like? They laugh at me and I feel the cold dance up my arms, down my spine, into my throat, pausing for a moment before trickling into my brain. The screaming stops, the pain stops. I make Meg get in the hospital bed with me to watch a scrupulous American woman ice a cake to look like a tennis racket. The ceiling droops, my tongue is long, it's heavy, it all fades to black. I feel sad about this one. A memory of a place I will never go again with people I no longer have. I had this same faraway feeling that night as we entered 2020, standing jiggly part of the thigh deep, freezing as smog descended and fires blazed towards us. Little bits of ash flitted into the water, scattering like thoughts and words as mushrooms turned us to jelly from the inside out. The farm circles us and we've laughed about Ethan Hawke and horses for hours. My abs hurt. I look up to see him holding a regurgitated mushroom deep in his palm. I've never seen anything further apart than that mushroom in his face. He looks up at me, smacks his palm to his mouth, gulping down air, ash, fungus. I'm 24 now, and my younger brother's 18. We have a beautiful relationship, made especially impressive by the age gap, I think. My long-term boyfriend calls me one afternoon and breaks up with me out of the blue. A week later, my little brother starts to worry as I faint in front of him. He calls me the next day and says, I could scratch his car for you. His Corolla's already a piece of shit, I tell him. He says he won't bother. He worries as I stop working, eating, sleeping, and he thinks marijuana could remedy this. We inspect the weed and see mold sprouting out of the knots. The drug taking is ruined. 
Adam tells me about the dark web one day. I imagine a black space with a door in the center, outlined in glowing green. It beckons me to touch it, a beacon in a binary space of circles and sticks. I reach out and I fall into nothing. My brother brings over a new bag of weed. His dealer friend was very embarrassed, he tells me, so he's given you a bit extra. I'm impressed and glad to be supporting the small business of a kid who is invested in product quality. I'm still pretty scared of drugs, though. He asks me if he should kiss his close female friend, and I say it's probably not worth ruining the friendship. He tells me he reckons they could make it work, and I smile at his 18-ness and tell him to go for it. He can worry about it later. No more chatting, he says. He's here to give me a joint rolling masterclass. Initially tutelary, he becomes frustrated by my lack of fine motor skills. I spill everything on the carpet, my filters folded, bulkily uneven. He takes it off me, frustrated, rolls five joints. For sleeping only, he says. It's Halloween now, and what's it all for? We're in a bed and I see a shadow of feral slip over Adam's face. We're all crying anyway, he says. Let's make ourselves as sad as we can be. The shadow spikes across the wall and we're all crying more. We're crying because how could we be doing what took him, flippant and reckless? He puts on a record and the bed starts to shake from their sobbing. Come and dance, he says. I don't want to. But the feeling of their sobs racking the bed, ricocheting through my body, is too intense. So I force myself up and I start to sway. The sun comes up and the spiky shadows fade. The music stops. The crying turns to heavy sleep sighs. I hold my hand in front of their faces to feel their hot breath, terrified of losing another in their sleep. I pull myself from bed and I walk home. I say his name out loud. I say, I'm sorry, and they miss you. I miss you. And why weren't you there? I'm annoyed you weren't there. Which isn't fair. And I know he would have put on the saddest song of any of us and swayed the furthest, swayed right down to the ground, into those shadowy walls, swayed and swung up far, far away, swung himself onto the moon or some faraway universe where he's sitting now, I hope, headphones on, a vape in hand, his mind alight and eyes ablaze. Thank you. That story was told by Olivia Costa. Thanks to all our amazing storytellers who took part in All The Best Live. The event was made possible with funding from the City of Sydney. Harvey O'Sullivan did sound on the night and Lindsay Riley filmed the event. If you missed part one of All The Best Live, you can listen back at allthebestradio.com or on our podcast feed. All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay our respects to elders past and present. All the best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land in association with Sin and 3RRR on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Woonwurrung lands and 8CCC on Arunda and Warramundu lands. The All The Best editorial manager is Mel Chun. Emma Pham is our social media producer and Lydia Yosefova is our community and events coordinator. Shiningberg composed our theme music and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network and we're made possible by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find out more at CBF dot org dot au
You can find more episodes by searching for All the Best wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Danny Stewart. Thanks for listening.